0: If you have your Bibles with you, uh, whether here or at home, uh, take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 36. Now, sometimes we use a product every single day and don't realize its purpose, or maybe we've been using it all wrong. So take, for example, the pasta ladle. Uh, this multi-pronged kitchen utensil uh, will, will dip out, will drain, and drag out your various styles of pasta. But did you know that that hole in the very center of the pasta ladle is actually very intentional? Because the hole is the exact size of serving of spaghetti pasta. That's what it's designed for. don't have a box, don't know how to measure, you put it right in the hole of the pasta ladle. Or take, for example, the headrest you have on your car. Now, my brothers and I thought that the reason those were designed to be taken out was so that we could take them out and hit each other with them uh, much to my parents' chagrin, but it's actually designed where if you have an emergency, you can actually puncture the window of your car to break through. Uh, say, for example, you find yourself at the bottom of a lake and need to get out. You pull the headrest out, you puncture the window, that's your way of getting out. You see, sometimes we don't see or understand products in the correct usage we are called for. And that's what the invitation of Jesus is. Jesus is inviting us to see that the world that we live in is oftentimes backwards and upside down. But instead, he is inviting us to see that he is turning the right side up, or turning us forward in the way that God has called us to. We're in this series, Kingdom. Through story, Jesus turns a backwards world right direction. We're examining all the parables in the Gospel of Luke to see that Jesus is inviting us to change our way of thinking and living. And for this, we took it, take a look at this parable in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 verse 36. Now it says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So we'll learn later on in the story that the Pharisee, that Jesus is eating, his home, is is a man named Simon. And this just hits an uncomfortable note immediately from the get-go, because Luke uses that word sin. It's an uncomfortable word for many of us. It's the Greek word hamarteo, which literally means missing the mark or falling short. So this woman is living a life of missing the mark or falling it short, She's, she's hitting to the right or left of what God has intended for her, but we don't exactly know what her sinful life is. She could be the town prostitute. She could be a person who cheats on her taxes. She could be a woman who habitually walks her donkey on the Sabbath. She could be a a woman that is breaking the law of Moses that commands her not to eat crawfish. We don't know what it is at this particular time, but we know that something about her life is broken. Something about her life, she's missing the mark. And it says this back in in verse 37. The woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at the table, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Well, this just got a little bit awkward. Who, who cries on someone else's feet and cleans them with her hair? No, no, seriously, who does that? Doesn't she know social standards? Doesn't she know that she can't just walk into somebody's house that she's not, not invited to? Doesn't she know that this is a completely gross act? Guy's feet are disgusting in general, but in Jesus' day, Guys here are like, yeah, absolutely, our feet are gross. And any wives in here are like, yeah, absolutely, feet are disgusting. The reason their feet were even more gross in Jesus' day was the fact that they walked around in sandals and and the arid climate and the dust of the streets. It would have been customary if you were a house guest to walk in somebody's home for them to offer a space for you to wash their feet, not only so you're not having stinky feet in the house, but also so you don't track dirt into their house as well. And yet we find this woman in this awkward place in which she is sobbing at Jesus' feet, allowing Jesus' feet to be cleaned by her tears, and then taking her hair out and cleaning it. Now, what we need to understand is that for this woman to take down her hair in this time would have been a public offense. It would have been the equivalent of if this woman had walked into this room without her shirt on. It was her glory. It was her privacy at this time. And yet she is so humbled in this moment by Jesus' presence that she is cleaning his feet with her hair. Something about her life is off, but something about Jesus' presence is changing her. And it says this in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, but what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon's mind is racing. He cannot reconcile who Jesus claims to be and what he's allowing this woman to do. And not only would this have been socially unacceptable for this woman of sin to be hanging around such righteous people, not only did she defile herself by making her hair unclean, letting her hair down in the presence of men... But Jesus is now actually unclean in his eyes because of what he's allowing this woman to do. And and doesn't Jesus know better? I mean, he claims to be this religious leader. Doesn't he know that he's associating himself with such horrible, sinful people? Simon has to tell Jesus what is right and what is wrong because clearly he doesn't get it. Like every young child transitioning out of a crib into a bed, uh, my daughter Madison had a really tough time with this. And every night was a battle of wills. She didn't want to stay in her bed, but we wanted her to stay in her bed. So we would put her in her bed, and then she would get out, walk right down the hallway, and come to the living room. And because she's still precious to this day, it made it super tough to argue with this cute little child who did not want to go to bed. And one particular night stands out that that she had this debate going with us, not just for a few minutes, but it went on for almost two hours, of her standing there telling us again and again that she is not tired, that she did not want to go to bed. Eventually, she started standing there in her stubbornness, falling asleep while she's standing there telling us that she's tired and doesn't want to go to bed. But she was right, and she knew what was right all along. See, we live in a culture of constantly striving for rightness. We want to be right, sound right, think right, talk right, and be right. We don't want to be wrong. We don't want to err. We don't want to hold the wrong position and opinion. We want to believe that we have it all together, and there's nothing about us that wants to be off or needs improvement or should be corrected. We are citizens of a culture of being right at all costs, individuals, businesses, politicians, entertainers will bend over backwards to justify their actions and their words spoken rather than simply stating, you know what? I was wrong. That's Simon in this story. He's so right about this woman's imperfection. He's so right about Jesus allowing himself to let this woman touch him and clean his feet with her hair He cannot see anything beyond this because he's viewing everything through the lens of his own rightness. Where does Jesus get the right to do this? Who gave him the authority to relinquish this woman from her religious and social wrongness? Isn't religion the very embodiment of rightness? just look at the law of of Moses. It's literally hundreds of thousands of rules and regulations. There's a very clear line in the sand of what is right and what is wrong, isn't there? And and that is what rightness does. Rightness draws a line of the division. It's a a line between those who are right and those who are wrong, those who are sinners and those who are righteous, those who are sanctified, and those who are damned. See, give a group of people a handful of subjects, and I'm sure you'll come away with an argument about them. We live in such a divisive time in our history, whether it be the diverging perspectives of whether or not Tiger King was a great series or not, of whether the rise of Skywalker was a worthwhile way to wrap up the the, uh, Skywalker saga, of how much Tua Tunglevoa's hurt ankle really made that big of a difference in that five-point differential of the LSU-Alabama football game last year. It made all the difference in the world. But in all seriousness, our our culture is saturated with arguments and division. As one person put it, it's no longer Republican versus Democrat, liberal versus conservative, it's 1% versus 99%, rural versus urban, white men against the world, climate doubters versus clashing with unbelievers, bathrooms And battles over bathrooms, borders or battle over lines, sex and race, faith and ethnicity, the melting pot seems to be boiling over. You see, in our drive for rightness, the dividing line are drawn between right and wrong, sanctified and corrupt. And the natural byproduct of rightness is exclusivity. You see, rightness leads us to reject other people, whether it be for their sports fandom or their political persuasion or their religious affiliation or their sexual orientation or their gender or their ethnicity or their race or their age or their economic status, on and on. You see, the human race has been in the business of excluding others since our tribal ancestors of keeping some in while pushing others out. In fact, the etymology of the word tribalism uh, literally comes down to this idea of inclusion and exclusion. See, in Jesus' day, it was the religious practice of a number of categories that might exclude you from the mix. The sick, the demon-possessed, the mentally ill, and the endless array of sins. You see, religion has become the master craftsman of exclusion since we have the laws and the holy book that we can interpret and dictate what kind of person belongs in God's kingdom and God's family and God's church. And Simon the Pharisee is a poster child of religion's mastery of exclusivity. This woman doesn't belong here. She shouldn't be touching you. Who do you think you are, Jesus? This is what God wants, right? This is why we are all given these laws of the Old Testament the laundry list of no-no sins in the New Testament, right? Sinners or saints, heaven or hell, the point of inclusion for righteousness and exclusion for the unholy, right? Isn't that the point of all of this? But it says this in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt to forgive. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. See, Jesus is taking advantage of this moment. He knows what Simon is thinking to himself. He knows the awkward climate of this moment. He knows the awkward judgmental stance that Simon is taking. And so Jesus asks the simplest math question in the Bible. And he does it through a story. Here is a person who owns 500 days' worth of wages and another who owes 50 days' worth of wages. Wouldn't it be nice if the moneylender would cancel it? And in fact, he does. Now, who would love the moneylender more? See, in this day, you would have put your family up for indentured servitude in order to pay back a moneylender for such such an outrageous and almost impossible debt to overcome. There's a good chance that you would have sold off one of your children to start the process of paying it off. And yet the moneylender in this story does the unthinkable. He forgives the debt with no condition. See, with this great mathematical problem swarming around in the brain, Simon has to come up with some sort of answer to Jesus as to who would love the moneylender more. And as if the answer wasn't obvious, I love how Simon almost cautiously answered by saying, I suppose the one who owed more. And I love how Jesus responds to him, you've answered correctly. It was almost like, hey, Simon, go to the box and pick you out a special gift for this simple answer that you just gave. And it says this in verse 44. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wept wept on my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she perfumed on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, of her many sins, they have been forgiven. And as great love has shown by her, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Yet again, Jesus shows us that the way of God is not the way of this world. That the way of this world that, that pushes people down and excludes people based on all the different qualifications that we can create, both in society, in politics, and economics, and even in religion, that God acts very differently. See, Jesus shows us that God's love transcends rightness. Simon represents how society and religion has, at his time would have viewed this woman. You're not like us. There's, there's something about you that we don't understand. We are threatened by you. You cannot conform to what we think is best for you, so you can go. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. But Jesus sees her through the lens of overwhelming love and mercy. Jesus' message to this woman is not one of condemnation with a laundry list of errors and and conditional love by which she must do these things in order to be included in God's love and mercy. Jesus' message back to her is one of love. Love that transforms whatever is aching this woman's heart. Love that is causing her to pour forth in conviction, love that transform her amongst this darkness that she's living, love that instills her with joy amongst her sorrow, kindness amid hostility. See, this woman's story joins the cavalcade of encounters that Jesus' ministry, in which the social outcast, the political enemy, the self-righteous religious, the economically poor, the corrupt bureaucrats, and the recipients of ethnic and racial discrimination are embraced by God's love. See, the message sent again and again from Jesus' encounters is it doesn't matter the societal, religious, governmental systems that you think you are a part of or worried they're not you are excluded. You are, in fact, a beloved child of God. In fact, it seems as though those who have the most stacked up against them because of their wrongness, their marginalization, their worthlessness, Jesus showed them the most compassion, and grace. And just in case you doubt it, consider the vast number of lepers, deaf, blind, beggars, dying, demon-possessed, Samaritans, Roman officials, and religious outcasts that Jesus encountered and transformed by love. That's the message of this parable told by Jesus in connection to this woman when you really stop and think about it. God's grace is abundant, even for those who seem to have for bidding number of mistakes stacked up against them. And while the world tends to focus on rightness leading to division and exclusion, Jesus shows us that God's kingdom is inclusive. It's not only obvious by the way that he included this woman to the kingdom of God despite her mistakes and what others thought of her. He, equally surprising is that Simon the Pharisee is being extended an invitation into God's kingdom. Jesus wants Simon's view of rightness and excluding others because of their inability to fulfill his religious obligations. He wants to transform Simon's life too and include him in the kingdom as well. Instead of walls created to shut out so-called sinners and undesirables, God desires to welcome all people into God's family. With God, there is no race or nationality, faith practice, sin, marital status, social faux pas, tally of mistakes, economic status, gender identity, sexual orientation, physical or mental ability, political stance, theological perspective, or station in life. For Jesus, there was no person out of bounds for love. We see this again and again in the ministry of Jesus. Whether you were a leper, the so-called loose woman of your town, filled with demons, suffering from blindness, a beggar on the streets, the highbrow of society, the lowly fisherman, the religious nutcase, the Roman occupier, or the enemy of Israel, or even a revolting Gentile, you are welcome as Jesus' follower. See, Jesus was badgered and berated by the so-called religious excerpts who persistently... Called him out for hanging out and eating with sinners. They called him a lover of sinners. You don't get that moniker by sitting in the temple and just reading the Bible all day long. You get it because you're out there engaging the lives of the unthinkable. And God is extending us this conditional love and belonging. The last uh, 365 days have been uh, somewhat taxing on my pride. I've managed to sustain three injuries, all needing physical therapy uh, for recovery. Uh, I had a severely sprained ankle, I developed tendonitis in my right shoulder, and then I came down with a bad case of sports uh, hernia. And is there anything better than waking up in the morning and immediately waking up to feeling all sorts of pain all over your body? And, and, and to make matters worse, I've been fighting this trench war. Um, With my hairline, it started at the age of 28, and I've just been losing ever since. You see, despite my resistance to reality, I'm feeling more and more imperfect as months tick by. And I think that's one of the greatest obstacles of embracing the way that God sees the world and sees others, is to overcome our rightness and division and exclusion, we have to see our imperfection. And this raises all sorts of questions about the authenticity of our perfection and togetherness because deep down we all know that we all have baggage in our lives. Whether it be familial or relational or work or political or economic or ethical or consumerism or societal or moral or environmental or more mistakes and mistakes and mistakes, we, we've all gotten it wrong. We've all missed the mark of what God desires for us. And when we stare into the eyes of this woman, even Simon the Pharisees, we know that we are imperfect beings. And God knows that we have a lifetime of failures and wrong perspectives. And so this battle rages within us when we hear this story. It's a battle of rightness and imperfection. And depending on who wins that battle, the entrenchment of our view of self and others wins. And if we choose rightness, we will only see the fault in other people's lives, never understanding how God could possibly be inclusive with God's love. Yet, the moral of this story is not just for this woman, but it's for this self-righteous religious Pharisee who saw his imperfection in light of God's grace. And when we can see our imperfection before a perfect God, then our eyes are open to the reality of God's grace. Think about that. It's the, in the gravity and undeserving nature of God's grace that changes our life. How can a God, who has every reason to despise and condemn us for the ways that we have twisted the way our lives are supposed to be, the, the way that we hurt other people, the way that we despise others and withdraw love from them that yet that God loves us in return? Philip Yancey put it this way, grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. Ask people what they must do to get into heaven and most will reply, be good. Jesus' story contradicts this answer. All we must do is cry, help. Help. See, we will never be able to understand this passage nor Jesus' parable if we cannot see our ongoing and ever-evolving imperfection before a perfect God that, dis- that, that sends forth grace into our life despite us. And God's grace is, is the only ointment that heals our wounds and a power capable of transforming our imperfections into perfection to transform our desire of rightness into openness of other possibilities. And the end game of Jesus' encounter in Luke 7 was not only to welcome this woman in and to push out a religious zealot. That was not his desire. But Jesus' desire to allow grace to transform Simon's life, to help him see the unrecognized imperfection in his life. The, the parable of the two borrowers is not just a story about one borrower's overwhelming debt canceled, but, but of two different kinds of borrower, borrowers released from what they have borrowed. As Brenning Manning put it, grace is sufficient enough, though we huff and puff with all of our might, to try to find something or someone that it cannot cover. Grace is enough. You see, living into God's grace empowers us to embrace all others. As Augustine put it, for grace is given not because of what we have done in good works, but in order that we might be able to do good works. Through God's grace, we see others as a child of God, not as a particular race or nationality or faith practice or sin or marital status or social faux pas or tally of mistakes or economic status or gender identity or sexual orientation or physical or mental ability or political stance or theological perspective or station in life. And, And while the human aspires towards rightness, in division and exclusivity, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of God is for all people. And so we see through the parable of the two builders, through a story, that Jesus is turning a backward world in the right direction. May we come to see that Jesus desires to course correct in our lives and in the world. And may we come to see that, that as all of us are welcoming God's love, that we in turn are called to live out profound compassion in this world, welcoming all people into God's church and seeking to live our lives daily in a way of inclusivity.